Hey everybody, Magnus here. Look, uh, guys, I want to be... There's something that I want to say to you guys, and I, I need to be a kind of uh, careful in how I say it, you know? Guys, I'm from Texas, you know, born and bred. That's where I'm from. And around here, manners are a really big deal. You know what I mean? Social decorum. There are certain things that you're supposed to do as a matter of social etiquette. There are certain other things that you're not supposed to do as a matter of social etiquette. Right? And the reason that social etiquette is so important from, I guess, a traditional standpoint, one of the reasons that it matters as much as it does, especially in the South, is that guys for a very long time, if you offended the wrong person at the wrong time, he might shoot you, all right? It's, it really is no more complicated than that. Manners are a big deal in the South, precisely because of the fact that in the best of scenarios, if you upset somebody, he might just beat your ass. In the worst of scenarios, he might blow your head off, right? So, manners are important, right? And a pretty conventional aspect of manners, tact, grace, social decorum, just to kind of give you guys an example, you don't generally talk about, for example, like how much money you make, especially if you make a lot of money. You generally don't talk about that. That's just, it's just not done. You know what I mean? It's one of those things that we all agreed upon as a human race centuries ago. This is one of those things that you really, you're not supposed to talk about, you know? Or at least you're not supposed to brag about. And so as it relates to podcasting and you guys, I don't want to, I've always tried to be kind of vague about numbers because there are podcasters out there who have, you know, listeners, like in the single digits, all right? I'm not kidding, you know, like somewhere in the single digits. There are other podcasters, like celebrity podcasters mostly, who have listeners in the tens of thousands, maybe the hundreds of thousands, maybe even, in like in a few cases, maybe even in the millions, you know? So, you know, any kind of bragging that you want to do about numbers there's always somebody out there who's got a lot fewer num uh, listeners than you do, and they may feel bad <clears throat> by listening to you uh, talk about your numbers. And, you know, the other thing is, just to kind of keep it in perspective, there's always somebody out there who's got a shitload more listeners than you do. I mean, they could lose as many listeners as you have and not even notice. You know, so <coughs> it's, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm still kind of, uh, <coughs> I'm still shaking off a cold here a little bit. <clears throat> there are podcasters out there who could lose what amounts to your entire listener base and they wouldn't even notice. So basically just shut the fuck up, you know, when it comes to, you know, your listening numbers and all of that stuff, you know, because you don't want to make someone else feel bad and you don't really want to brag either because, you know, like I say, there's always somebody out there who's got a ton of more listeners than you do, you know? So just keep it all in perspective, I guess, is what it comes down to. This, of course, is a very 
freaking long preamble and into really what I want to talk about with you guys, which is, I guess, basically, I want to thank every single one of you listening right now for making the last episode of Magnus Talks About Smallville. And I, I speak here of this is the goddamn thing, whatever load for me. I could actually give you an exact um, episode number here. Uh, this is episode number 158. This is Magnus Talks About Smallville. The subject, or not the subject line, the episode title is It Was Magic. The Dread is Here. And guys, I'm not going to get specific really about about numbers or anything. I just want to thank every single one of you for making episode number 158 one of the most popular and successful downloads on the entire Two True Freaks network, literally ever since the day the show came out, you know, which uh, that was actually, uh, that that was back in, I believe that was uh, uh, not, here I was, I was about to say September. That was actually uh, near the end of uh, July, right? And just to kind of put that in perspective, it came out, according to my calendar, it, it came out at the very tail end of July. This is, uh, it came out on July the, the 26th, 2016. And it was one of the most highly downloaded episodes of the entire network, in spite of the fact that it came out so close to the end of the month. All right. And it's been very successful ever since that time. It was one of the most popular downloads in August. It was, again, one of the most popular downloads in September as well. All right. And so I just want to thank all of you for for caring, for listening, and for making Magnus talks about Smallville in general, but that episode in particular, episode, as I say, uh, uh, this is uh, episode number 158, that one in particular, again, I'm not going to be specific as to how many download numbers or what the exact placement of it was in relation to the other two True Freaks uh, family of shows, other than to say it was one of the most popular shows and has been, even at the time that I record this, which is Saturday, September the 17th, episode number 158 has been a smash hit this entire time. And guys, you know, it really means a lot to me that you guys apparently care this much about what I have to say about, about Smallville. You know, so I, again, I just want to thank every single one of you for, I guess, this, what I view as this extremely high compliment that you've given me, you know, and what I want is for every single show to be the best that it can be and high download numbers like that for episode number 158 tell me that Apparently, I'm doing what I set out to do as a podcaster. And guys, that really means a lot to me. You know, I want you to know that I appreciate you. I value you. I cherish every single one of you. Thank you very much for this great honor that you've, that, that you've given me. You know, it, 
as I say, I mean, words fail me. Clearly they fail me because I'm stumbling over my own words and tripping over my tongue here. Guys, thank you very much. It means everything. So that's pretty much that. I just wanted to make sure that you listeners understand that you're valued, you're appreciated. And guys, if you like what I say, uh, send me some feedback, you know, or write an iTunes review. You know, just let me know what you think. So that I think is basically that. Well, except for the fact that your feedback can be emailed to me at trentusmagnus at gmail.com. That's trentusmagnus at gmail.com. T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S at gmail.com. Thank you very much, guys. I really do appreciate this. And now enjoy the rest of the episode. I've studied the form of comics intimately. What you need is a hobby. Words and pictures, it could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know, it's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil and a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are a last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football, Year-round, nobody cares. Basketball, year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me to make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You have been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. Welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I do is talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. But every eighth episode of this show, I put everything on pause to talk about one TV show in particular. And that show is Smallville. But once upon a time, I used every eighth show to talk about Star Wars comics. Yes, the old days. Things were different then. Back then, I was on Libsyn, and I put together a format of my show that seemed cool to me. Basically, I had the idea of doing six episodes where I talk about whatever I want. The seventh episode, back then was intended for me and Chris Honeywell to talk about the DC Paradox Press line of big books. 
Things like the big book of urban legends, the big book of conspiracies, the big book of the unexplained, so on and so forth. And then the eighth episode would be all about Star Wars. But that changed for two reasons. First, I realized that I just don't have as much to say about Star Wars as I originally thought. And second, I realized that my Star Wars shows might have been a little too similar to what the two true freaks do with their monthly Star Wars show themselves. So, what I'm saying here is I decided to abandon talking about Star Wars as a dedicated fixture of my show. Instead, I replaced it with Smallville. Now, you've all heard this speech a thousand times now, so I really hope it's sunk in. I dig Star Wars, but I want to talk about a subject that I find more interesting. And besides, doing a regular Star Wars show is just a little too close for comfort to the Two True Freaks monthly Star Wars episode. Now, if you haven't realized that yet after a thousand friggin' times of me telling this story, I'm really not sure what to say to you. But anyway, so I decided to analyze Smallville from beginning to end, top to bottom, front to back, side to side, and everything in between. And right now I'm working my way through the dreaded fourth season. Now, you might ask yourself why it is that I call this the dreaded season four. And there are reasons for that. First, Al Goff and Miles Miller made the decision to bring Lana Lang a little bit more into this dreaded season storyline than she'd been involved with in previous seasons. And on the one hand, I can't really knock their logic on that. You know, I mean, it makes sense to position Lana as a real character on this show rather than just being a shallow love interest for Clark or worse yet, the object of every kryptonite mutant's desire. So that I get. But their way of incorporating Lana more deeply into the story took the form of this really fucking obnoxious ghost witch storyline where basically Lana gets possessed sometimes by the ghost of a witch from France from the 15th century or around there. And then she beats the snot out of everybody. And it's just, it's a really inane story and it's really not to my taste. But what I'll say in defense of the witch storyline is that the dreaded season four began moving Smallville as a TV show more into a a direction of heavy science fairy tale types of stories. The first three seasons of the show were vaguely realistic in as much as they didn't go too far outside of grounded and fairly relatable storylines, but that all began changing in the dreaded fourth season and it had changed further before this was all said and done. But worse than that that witch storyline, Another thing that makes this season dreaded is how it shamelessly showed Lana dating a high school football coach. Now, I went off on a tear about that back in the first part of this dreaded season four retrospective. So if you really want to hear me rant about that, that's the place to go. Suffice it to say, though, I didn't really approve of that storyline. Another terrible thing is how this season dealt with a lot of melodramatic soap opera relationship bullshit like 
people trying to break Lana and Jason up and that and that kind of thing. And look, that stuff, again, just isn't to my taste. As a matter of fact, we'll be getting a big plateful of that bullshit in this very episode. But what I'll say about that stuff is that those sorts of stories were designed to appeal to junior high girls. And that demographic did their fair share to keep Smallville as a TV show going, so naturally Goff and Miller had to throw him a bone and have these just really over-the-top subplots about relationships and romantic bullshit that, honestly, I just don't relate to as a grown-up man, you know? Now, don't get me wrong. This dreaded season started off awesome with... Crusade, Gone, Facade, Devoted, Run, Transference, and Jinx. Those were some really fun episodes. But starting with Spell, which I talked about in the last episode, the wheels started coming off the wagon. It's my firm opinion that the dreaded season four never truly recovered from Spell, Sacred, and all the episodes in between, so that by the time credits rolled for Sacred, this dreaded season had become an absolute fucking wreck. And I guess speaking of Sacred, I really wish I could tell you that the episodes that we're going to be talking about today are a vast improvement over that which has gone before, but people, that just wouldn't be true. Still, it's worth mentioning that even if the stories are kind of shit, the character dynamics are actually pretty solid. Better than you'd think in most cases. Now, it's true, the Smallville writers were stuck with a crap concept. There's no getting around that. But they did everything in their power to give the characters real meat in these stories. So keep an eye out for that. Anyway, but that's the state of things right now. So, last time I finished up my comments with Episode 12, Pariah. And you know what that means. It's time for a break. Be right back to resume the discussion about the dreaded fourth season of Smallville, beginning with episode 13, Recruit, after these messages. you're gonna do with all that junk all that junk inside your trunk I'm a get 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 you drunk get you love drunk off my hump 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 my lovely little lumps Check it out. I drive these brothers crazy. I do it on the daily. They treat me really nicely. They buy me all these ice, Dolce and Gabbana, Fendi and Madonna, Karen 
Baby Sharon, all their money, got me wearing fly. Whether I ain't asking, they say they love my ass in seven jeans. True religion, I say no, but they keep giving, so I keep taking. And no, I ain't taking. We can keep on dating. Now keep on. Hi, it's John Glover. Welcome to the Smallville Retrospective. I hope you guys have a good time and learn a lot about all of us. Continuing my look at the dreaded fourth season of Smallville. <sighs> People, I really wish I had some good news here for you. I really do. But the fact is, there's no good news to give. The shows I'm talking about this time out have flashes of brilliance that are usually over overwhelmed by inexcusable bullshit. It's one of the reasons why I call this the dreaded season four, in fact. Because for every good idea going on here, there are six or seven really shitty ideas going on, too. As a matter of fact, the only half-ass positive thing that I can think of offhand is we're nearing the end of the dreaded season four. We're beyond the halfway point now, and pretty soon, we can move on to more interesting stuff. We're not even that far away, in fact. There's only one more dreaded Season 4 retrospective after this one, and then we can talk about Season 5. So there's a happy thought. And some big stuff happens in Season 5. And most of it's a lot more interesting than anything from the dreaded fourth season. But, before we can talk about any of that stuff, we've got to get this horrible, godforsaken, dreaded fourth season over with. And on that note, Recruit. Episode 13. Clark gets an offer of a full scholarship uh, from Met U to play football. His liaison is Jeff Johns. No, not that one. The Jeff Johns in this episode is a rock star football player from Met U. Problem is, old Jeff has the ability to paralyze anybody who pisses him off, and he uses that to win football games. So, how long do you suppose it's going to take for Lois Lane to get in trouble here? Before we get going on that, though, yes, it's safe to say that we're now officially in the armpit of the dreaded Season 4's bullshit melodrama. Secrets, lies, Lex trying to break Lana and Jason up, 
Genevieve trying to break Lana and Jason up. Fucking blah, blah, blah. Honestly, a lot of this shit defies rational criticism. It's daytime soap opera bullshit intended to appeal to 14-year-old girls. And so you can't and shouldn't hold bullshit like this under a microscope. What I will say, though, is that it might be tempting to make fun of that. But the truth is that those 14-year-old girls at least were a crucial demographic for this era of Smallville. In the big scheme of things, they're about as important as core Superman fans to Smallville's long-term prospects. And so, as an audience, they have to be taken care of. Melodramatic bullshit like Lana storming into Lex's office to accuse him of trying to break her and her boyfriend up is part of how you... of how you do all of that, how you appeal to 14-year-old girls, because, let's face it, junior high drama like that is front and center in most 14-year-old girls' lives. Now, it feels irrational for me to hate on that, because, first, those subplots aren't intended for me, and second, the part of the audience those subplots are aimed at certainly did their fair share to prop this show up and keep it going. But at the same time, plots like this don't interest me. I mean, look, don't get me wrong. If I was 13 years old, a girl, and had never been in a real relationship, yeah, maybe I'd give a damn. But as a 33-year-old man, or 34-year-old man now, who's been in several relationships... This shit simply isn't for me. That having been said, though, there are some occasional nice moments. Who the hell do you think you are? Something bothering you, Lana? If you want to know something about me, Lex, ask. Don't go recruiting my boyfriend to conduct some covert investigation. Contrary to what you may think, I'm on your side. And how would I know that? You know, with you, everything seems like it's a secret. What you may perceive as secrecy, I see as precautions. I'm a big girl, Lex. I don't need precautions. I need the truth. And besides that, there's some plot advancement going on here. Jason told Lana that his mother was hanging out in the Hamptons when they met in Paris. But Lex shows Lana a picture of Jason and Genevieve hanging around in Paris the day before he met Lana. So, what the fuck? Jason lied? What happened to the Hamptons? I mean, that's a weird thing to lie about, isn't it? And also, where the hell did Lex get that photograph of Jason and Genevieve shooting the shit together out in Paris? On top of all that, Genevieve's been researching Isabel the Witch for years now. Jason grew up completely submerged in all things Isabel since he was a child. So how much of a coincidence is it that Lana just happened to get possessed by Isabel the Witch when the Teagues were skulking around nearby. I'd spoil ahead on this because that's my policy this season, but honestly, I don't exactly remember where this is going, and very honestly, I don't give a fuck enough to check on this for myself. One other point, though. Lex hires Jason to find out what Lana and Genevieve know about Isabel the Witch, and also he makes sure Lana finds out about it. 
which is a standard, nonsensical soap opera storyline if ever I've heard one. Normally, I'd pay no attention to that, except Lex then spills the beans to Lana about the Teague family's long-held interest in Isabel the Witch. That'd be a pretty fucking stupid thing to do, unless... Yes, Lex is in fact trying to split Jason and Lana up and turn them against each other. <sighs> Usually, something like this might be done completely arbitrarily. Except, Lex has obvious, and maybe not so obvious, interests at work here. For one thing, Lana obviously can't handle this shit on her own. For another thing... This has affected Lex directly. Isabel the Witch cursed Lex back in Spell, and he played the piano until he bled. So, who exactly knows what'll happen next time? And I'm guessing here, maybe, maybe Lex wants to make sure there won't be a next time. I mention all of this to say that there is some rational thought put into all of this aggravating, soapy bullshit. In terms of happier stuff, though, Chloe needles Clark a little bit about his secret. It's not much of a spoiler to say that this stuff won't last beyond the dreaded fourth season, but there it is anyway. Still, I kind of like this era of Clark and Chloe's friendship. As I said before, it allows her to play the same role that Pete Ross did back in the pre-crisis comic book era in, in as much as Chloe's the one member of the supporting cast who knows Clark's secret but tells nobody about it. Not even Clark himself. This can be said of Chloe here in Smallville, but it's also true of Pete Ross, like I said, back in the pre-crisis era. And so because of that, pre-crisis Pete and Smallville Chloe can sometimes help cover up for Clark and his bullshit excuses for running off just when things are getting interesting. This concept has always worked for me because it's so believable. In Smallville, we've seen people secretly observe Clark perform some superpowered rescue or another. Sometimes those people have nasty agendas, like Detective Sam Phelan from Rogue back in Season 1. But sometimes, those people are bound to have more benevolent motives as well. The law of numbers kind of demands that. So, Chloe secretly witnessing Clark use his powers, and then going out of her way to help protect him? That works for me. Especially when she puts the screws to him a little bit once in a while. Now, back when the dreaded season 4 was still airing, I wanted this storyline resolved right away so that Chloe could become a, a kind of sort of sidekick, like Pete used to be. But re-watching it all now, part of me kind of wishes it could have lasted a little longer, because I'll be honest, man, it's just, it's a lot of fun to watch. And no, it doesn't hurt that Tom Welling and Allison Mack play really well off each other. Anyway. So, deeper themes and implications. Clark ultimately decides to turn down the full scholarship, the Chevy Avalanche pickup truck, and everything else that Met You offered. He's quitting football altogether, in fact. Now, just think about that for a minute. 
Playing football was a huge issue between Clark and Jonathan back in Facade. Clark's only concern through this whole mess, though, has been that he can control his powers now in ways that, honestly, very well might not have been possible back in the pilot episode. So why the fuck does Jonathan not trust him already? Jonathan's angle here, though, is that's not even the point anymore. Clark has every possible advantage over every other team. There's literally nothing, nothing at all that they can throw at him that won't... I don't know. That, that basically is just going to stop him from winning the game. They've got nothing in their arsenal to compete with Clark. Even if Clark holds back on 99.9% .9 of his powers, he'll always be able to throw the ball that extra distance to make a touchdown. Stay on his feet just long enough to make the difference and all that stuff. Now, it's one thing to be a naturally superior athlete. It's a completely different argument, though, when we're talking about super powers. But Clark didn't want to hear a word about it. In Superman the movie and the first issue of John Byrne's Man of Steel miniseries, Jonathan takes an active hand on all this. He makes Clark's decision for him. But that doesn't happen here. Jonathan argues his point, but ultimately lets Clark make his own decisions. For his own part, Clark had never thought much about becoming a football superstar. Basically, he just wanted some kind of normal high school experience, but obviously the full, the full scholarship from MetU turned Clark's head a little bit. And who can blame him? I mean, that's a lot for any kid to process. But in the end, Clark realized that Jeff Johns had an unfair advantage over his competition. He used his powers to get ahead, no matter how immoral and dishonest it was. He even went so far as to kill to protect his secret. And honestly, I think Jeff caught Clark on a good day. Thanks to Alicia, Clark's just had a very good look at how ugly and unfair it is when people take advantage of their superpowers. And Clark also had to recognize that as good a person as he may be, he's not a flawless person. He's capable of making stupid decisions and trusting the wrong people. Alicia supposedly loved Clark, but that didn't stop her from trying to kill Lana back in Season 3, or from drugging Clark himself with red kryptonite back in Unsafe from this dreaded season. Speaking of which, Clark not only has an unfair advantage over his competition, but he, he could also be a threat to everyone around him. What if he accidentally gets dosed with red kryptonite again? It could happen. And then what? But just for the sake of argument, let's say that everything goes swimmingly at Met You. Clark keeps his secret under wraps. Nobody ever gets hurt. Clark never has trouble with kryptonite again or anything else. How far does this go? Sooner or later. Sooner, I think. The NFL's gonna come knocking. So, does Clark accept their offer too? When is it enough? What Clark realizes in Recruit is Jonathan Kent was absolutely, positively, completely, 101% right about everything he said. Because of that, Clark rejects the Met U scholarship all by himself. 
he quits football forever of his own accord. This brings the conflict between Jonathan and Clark from way back in Hothead from season one, brings all of that to fullness. Jonathan and Clark ultimately dropped the subject of Clark playing football back in that episode, but they never really came to a resolution about it. There was no meeting of the minds, as the DeManzo Corps lawyers are always saying. Clark, he basically just submitted to Jonathan back in season one, and for the moment, that was the end of it. But here in Recruit, their conflict finally gets truly resolved. Again, this ties in with the dreaded season four, calling back to conflicts and problems from the first season, and bringing them to some sort of conclusion. And this hasn't happened in a while. Between all this bullshit about the stones and witches and whatnot, it's been a long while since season one stuff was last touched upon. So, at least for me, this is a welcome return. There are a lot of issues here. Clark doesn't want to become Jeff Johns. He doesn't want to take unfair advantage. Playing football for a year in high school, I mean, look, that's one thing. That's really just fun and games, but when does Clark decide it's just not right to cheat anymore? When does that moment happen? Clark realizes that the time has got to be now. So he walks away. Now, Clark loves football. He loves being praised and accepted by people after an entire lifetime of having to shun them. And people love Clark. They like his humility and his, his simple honesty. Clark's a likable guy, and hey, he's great at football too. On a selfish level, this is everything that Clark's ever wanted in life. But here's the thing, Clark Kent doesn't get to be selfish. His vast, godlike powers are a lot of fun sometimes. They've been really handy in emergency situations, and for the most part, Clark's done right by himself, his family, his friends, and his powers so far. But any way you look at it, his abilities are an incredible responsibility. Clark ultimately realizes, all by himself, that he doesn't have powers in order to win a few football games. He's got a higher purpose to fulfill. He's got to have, you know, he, yeah, look, he's, he, he's got to have some fun and play football in high school. But there comes a point when it's time to leave that in the past and start looking to the future. To me, Clark's moment of realization is more powerful than Jonathan dictating to him. Jonathan didn't force his opinion on Clark in Smallville like he has in other things. At least, not in the dreaded fourth season. And so as a result, Clark's decision not to play sports is more valuable because he's coming to it on his own. He's not submitting to his father's authority. He learns on his own that his father is right. And then he makes the decision not to cheat. And this is Clark making an informed choice. In Superman the movie, Clark had no idea what he was missing out on. Not really. But in Smallville, Clark not only knows, he's experienced it. He's even been tempted by celebrity, by wealth, and don't kid yourself, by women. And then he decides not to do it. He decides that. And that's just fucking powerful to me. 
I mean, how fucking epic is all this? Anyway. For now, we're back to more standalone episodes. Speaking of which... Episode 14, Crypto. Another day, another standalone episode. Lois comes back to Smallville, Genevieve's not far behind, and Clark gets a dog with superpowers. Once again, Chloe subtly needles Clark about his secret, but she also covers for him when Shelby drags the tractor through the front yard. (laughs) I mean, I gotta tell you, this shit is gold, man. I mean, I wish we could have gotten more of it. And speaking of gold, Lois and Clark have more snappy dialogue together in Crypto. This is stuff that'd get refined in future seasons, but, you know, as I rewatch these episodes here in the dreaded season four, it's really cool to realize that Tom Welling and Erica Durant had great chemistry together, literally from the start. Other stuff. Clark originally wants to name the dog Crypto, but eventually they settle on the name Shelby. Both names come from the comics. Now, everybody knows Crypto, but Shelby was the name of Clark's dog in Superman for all seasons. And as it happens, Shelby here in Smallville is a kind of, sort of, interesting hybrid of Crypto and Shelby from the comics. He's got Crypto's loyalty and Shelby's appearance, and ultimately, Shelby's lack of superpowers. So, It's kind of sneaky of Goff and Miller to use Crypto as the title for this episode where Shelby makes his debut. Touché, guys. Touché. Now, there are people out there, and I, I won't name names because it won't gain me anything, but some of the haters really busted on Goff and Miller for not bringing Shelby back uh, for more episodes more often. Now, At least for me, it's not hard to understand why Shelby played a pretty small role in most episodes. That's because working with animals on set is an incredible pain in the ass on so many levels. But Shelby shows up often enough to give continuity to Crypto as an episode. See, right now we're heading into a time in Smallville's history where it became very fashionable to bash on the show, criticize it for a bunch of flaws it doesn't even have, and basically tear it apart. My first episode of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality was dedicated to defending Smallville from a bunch of common bullshit complaints that people have made over the years. Well, this one is less frequent, but people still bitch and complain about how small a role Shelby plays on this show. So, I'm going to speak up in defense. Anyway, as to other stuff, at one, uh, at a one point in Crypto, Jason meets with Genevieve and they talk about Isabel the Witch. Genevieve fills Jason in on some history by saying that Isabel the Witch swore vengeance on the person who condemned her to burn at the stake. Her and all of her heirs. That chick's name, the one who condemned Isabel to burn at the stake, is Gertrude. Gertrude's heirs are Genevieve and Jason. But Genevieve doesn't say that. She refers to herself and Jason as Gertrude's ancestors. But they're not. Gertrude is their ancestor. 
Genevieve and Jason are Gertrude's descendants. There's a kind of, sort of, big fucking difference between the two. Now, I mention this, not to bash on the show unnecessarily, but because words have meaning. Usage has meaning. Certain words used in certain times and in certain contexts. Language matters. Nothing pisses me off more than hear, than to hear characters in movies or TV shows say stupid shit like, that truck nearly ran over my sister and I. That's not how it should be said. It's piss-poor fucking grammar. If that's how you're going to structure the sentence, you'd say, that truck nearly ran over my sister and me. Usage. Grammar. This shit all has a purpose. And when it gets fucking ignored by professionals, it pisses me off. Everybody knows that grammar are very important to rest. Now, anyway. The less enjoyable stuff in all this is, as always, when it comes to the dreaded season four, it relates to the Teagues and Lana. Now, I gotta be honest, it doesn't escape me that Lex can't even make it through those scenes without getting a drink. And shit, that means he and I are in actually very good company with one another there. Still, Lex and Genevieve have a, sorty, have a sort of f- flirty repartee going. And I kind of like that. If Bound proved nothing else, it's that Lex is kind of a pussy hound. In fact, I dare say that's all Bound established. God knows a coherent sense of morality was nowhere to be found. With Bound. <laughs> anyway. But they flirt a little bit, and my point is that it makes sense. Genevieve probably gets a lot of things by flirting. Or God knows by other things. Lex usually tries to meet everybody on their level, so he returns fire. Something else, Lionel gives Jason the map that Lex and Clark discovered hidden inside a manuscript page, which Isabel the Witch promptly banished to someplace or other. Did you follow all that? Anyway, the map leads to one of the stones of knowledge. The Teagues are after it, and obviously Lex is too. Lionel seems completely detached from the quest, though, even though originally he was searching for him as much as anybody else. Again, this plays into shit that's coming much later on in the series, so it's beyond my mandate to get into it now. Just keep in mind. There is a relationship of some kind between the Teagues and the Luthers. <sighs> now, there really are no deeper themes and implications going on here. This is basically just a, a fun episode. So, in a sense, it's kind of perfect for the dreaded season four. Also perfect for the dreaded fourth season, though, is Sacred, episode 15. Whether I like it or not, whether you like it or not, this episode, Sacred, is crucial to the dreaded season four's wider story arc. Jason, Lex, Lana, and Clark all wind up in Shanghai, searching for one of the Stones of Knowledge. Isabel the Witch saves Lana from getting electrocuted, and then uses Lana to find the stone. Clark and Isabel have a really fucking clumsy fight, and look, I'm, 
The fight itself is okay, don't get me wrong, but the staging of it suggests that Lex and Jason witnessed the whole thing. The conclusion of it just isn't edited very well, and overall, I just, I think it could have been done better. Now, I feel like I should emphasize that this episode is incredibly well done on almost all levels. No expense was spared with production design or location shooting. The writers, that is to say Kelly Souders and Brian, Brian Peterson, kicked ass and took names with the script. The effects are among the very best of the show's entire run up to this point. You, for damn sure, can't knock the, the acting, especially not Kristen Krug, who always remembers to play Isabel the Witch differently from Lana, even right down to body language. And overall, this is just a really well-done episode. The issue here is that I simply don't enjoy all of this Isabel witch bullshit. I've explained why on several occasions now, but the short version is that Lana basically replaces Clark as the protagonist in this storyline. Goff and Miller said that they wanted to involve Lana more deeply in this year's season-wide storyline. What they forgot to mention, though, was that involving Lana comes at the expense of admitting Clark into all of this. It comes at the expense of Clark's participation. And of all times to put Clark into some sort of conflict with the Teagues, there was a good opportunity here. But Clark and Jason barely have any dialogue with each other. I mean, blink and you miss it. It never really happens. This is the episode where it's discovered that Dr. Virgil Swan has passed away. We find out about that right as Clark receives a package from Swan. Aside from returning the key to Clark's ship, Swan also encloses a letter that makes it seem like he knew his time was up. It, seem, it seems kind of cheap to do things this way, I'll admit, but you got to keep in mind that Christopher Reeve had passed away unexpectedly months before this. He was supposed to have a bit more of an ongoing role in the dreaded fourth season. The outcome of which might, just might, have resulted in the dreaded season four being less dreaded. We'll never know. But as I've said before, Reeve passing away, combined with Margot Kidder's public meltdown, meant that a lot of the storyline relating to Swan, his foundation the Stones of Knowledge, and other bullshit, had to either be jettisoned or else completely transformed. A big part of that requires killing off Dr. Swan because you really can't replace Christopher Reeve with some other actor. It was stunt casting to ever cast Reeve in the part to begin with. Replacing him was never on the table. I say all of this to point out, just in case it wasn't obvious, that none of this is Goff and Miller's fault. They were stuck just trying to make the best of a bad situation, but Reeves' death has implications on the larger story that I'm not sure that people have ever really stopped to consider. I'll get more into it when we dive into the fifth season, but I think there was something major planned for Dr. Swan that had to be completely redone and probably even elite, uh, deleted altogether once Christopher Reeve died. But anyway, 
Dr. Sw uh, Dr. Swan tells Clark in an email that he's been searching for the Stones of Knowledge for years without any luck. Clark was his last hope. Bridget Crosby was supposed to give Clark the one stone that uh, he managed to find, except she didn't, and Clark can't reach her. So let's recap because it's easy to lose track with all this shit. Clark found the Crystal of Fire and hid it in the Kawachi Caves back in Crusade. So that one's safe and sound. Bridget Car uh, Crosby collected the Crystal of Water from Edgar back in Transference. Right now, it's still in her possession. There's no telling where she is right now. Jason stole the Crystal of Air out of the temple while Clark and Lana were, un were unconscious after their fight in Sacred. So there you go. All stones accounted for. Deeper themes and implications. Clark shows a willingness to trust Jarrell and Dr. Swan by searching for the stones. Jonathan and Martha try to talk him out of it, but Clark has to take the long view of the situation. If he finds the stones, he can decide later if he wants to put them all together or not. But if someone else finds them, mankind's fucked. Fucked. Do you hear me? Fucked. This lines up rather nicely, really, with decisions Clark made back in Recruit where he chose to reject the scholarship from Met You and quit football rather than exploit his superpowers for personal gain. Clark realized that he had to use his powers for higher purposes, something better and more noble than winning football games. Consider that Clark took advantage of his powers and somebody else paid the price for it back in G Jinx. Then remember that Alicia took advantage of Clark's vulnerability to kryptonite back in Unsafe. And in Recruit, Jeff Johns, the football player, showed Clark what he might have to do in order to keep his secret under wraps if he continues playing football. These have been Clark's formative experiences this season. Those things, combined with dire warnings both from Dr. Swan and Jarrell, make it believable that Clark would go searching for the stones. It makes sense to me. Apart from that, and there's nothing that I can base any of this on, but what I speculate was the original plan for Season 4 is as follows. Basically, I think Virgil Swan would have appeared in Crusade and come to Martha to help her with Clark's problems. He'd have given her black kryptonite to split Clark off from his Kryptonian side, and at the end of the episode, once Clark was back to normal, Swan would have come back and uh, told Clark the bullshit about the Stones of Knowledge and how he needs to find them and unite them before they fall into the wrong hands. And Clark would have been all, yeah, thanks but no thanks, about it. And then Swan would have warned Clark of dire consequences if he didn't shut the hell up and do what he was told. After that, the season commences more or less as we know it. Then, in Transference... Swan would have taken uh, possession of the Crystal of Water from Edgar. After that, the season would continue, more or less, as we know it. Sacred is where things would have really broken away from what we know. First off, Swan would have personally sent Clark to Shanghai to search for the Crystal of Air. Meanwhile, Genevieve would have crashed the party in Shanghai. And hell, maybe you could have set that up 
uh, set up that the, that the Chinese soldiers were operating on Genevieve's orders. After getting tortured by the soldiers, Isabel the Witch would have take, retaken Lana and then wrecked shop on everybody. From there, Isabel would have killed Genevieve. Then, Isabel and Clark fight it out and it ends more or less as it does in the final version of Sacred. From this point, Jason would be a full-on enemy. He'd be gunning for Clark and very possibly Lex because he blames both of them for putting Lana in harm's way in the first place. But he'd still be involved with Lana. This is key. It had come up again later on. Now, who the hell even knows what would have happened with the Crystal of Air in this alternate scenario that I just pulled out of my ass? The most likely explanation I, I, that I can think of is that Lana would have, ob she would have absconded with it. And that'd make sense, but who can say? Starting in this episode, or rather, the episode that follows this one, this alternate version of Sacred that we're talking about here, we'd be building toward the finale, and Goff and Miller would have to start preparing for that. So in the 16th episode that would have followed Sacred in this bullshit imaginary scenario that I'm laying out, Swan would have come back to give Clark the, the Crystal of Water, and again insist that he find the missing Crystal of Air since the crystal of fire is safe and sound in the Kawachi Caves, and logically, only Jason, Lex, or Lana could have the crystal of water. Knowing Clark, he probably would have said the stones are too dangerous and refused to even search for the crystal of air. Swan would have probably shown up again in episode 21 to warn Clark that some serious shit is about to go down unless he finds the crystal of air pronto. Clark would again tell Swan to go piss up a rope because he's finished with Krypton, stones, and all that other bullshit, considering all the trouble that it's caused him lately. From there, the finale would play out more or less as we know it. However, instead of Genevieve, the sacrificial lamb in the season finale here, this, this hypothetical season finale, would have been Jason. Isabel the Witch would have used Lana to kill Jason, which would probably be a pretty bad day for Lana once she was back in her right mind. But Isabel the Witch would have departed permanently, never to be seen or heard from again, as she'd wiped out Gertrude's direct bloodline. Meanwhile, it's anybody's guess as to whether Swan would have come back in the finale. Maybe he would have, just so he could dress Clark down for not doing what he was told and really indirectly causing all the problems in the finale. But then that's arguably more Jarrell's job at that point, so I could see it either way. From there, the finale would have wrapped up basically as we already have it. So, as you can see, there would have been structural changes, but they would have added, at least in my opinion, quite a lot to the narrative. I assume that vilifying Jason would have put Clark right in his crosshairs, which is where Clark needs to be with any season's big bad. Again, everything that I've said up to this point is just speculation on my part. What might have happened had Christopher Reeve not passed away? And like I say, there's nothing I can hang any of this stuff on apart from my own intuition and the structure of previous seasons. But my scenario utilizes the same essential framework as what we've already got while incorporating Swan and actually doing something with the Teagues. So you can believe it or not believe it. I just wanted to put it out there. That brings us to Lucy, episode 16. 
Lucy drops in for a visit, that is to say Lucy Lane drops in for a visit, but it seems she's on the, uh, on the run from a loan shark. Because shortly after she arrives, all hell breaks loose. I gotta tell you, I've always had a soft spot for Smallville standalone episodes. I've made no secret about that either. I've always thought standalone episodes are the easiest for new viewers to get into. And yeah, that makes less of a difference once a show hits DVD, but when the shit's being broadcast, that makes a huge difference. Plus, standalone episodes have been known to have some of the most fun and engaging uh, action scenes. Remember Accelerate from Season 2? That sequence where Clark chases Emily Densmore in, in the rain? Won fucking awards. But how important was Accelerate really? To season two in the grander scheme of things? Not very. That's why it pains me to say that Lucy is just not a very good episode. The episode starts with Lucy getting chased around a ski slope in Switzerland by a loan shark. So you get the idea that she's on the run from this loan shark. Except that Lucy, as an episode, turns on the revelation that Lucy, the character, and her loan shark are basically working together to scam Lex. So, what the fuck? How does that account for the opening part of the episode where Lucy is clearly running away from that guy? I mean, that's the reveal of this episode, and it makes no fucking sense whatsoever. It ends up dragging down the episode as a whole. In fact, a lot of things in this episode aren't what they appear to be. After the main credits... uh, Lana and Jason find their apartment's been ransacked and somebody stole the crystal of air. At the end of the episode, it's revealed that Lana staged the break-in so that she could keep the crystal of air for herself. So let's do a quick recap of the stones. Clark found the crystal of water and hid it in the Kawachi Caves back in Crusade, so that one's safe and sound. Bridget Crosby collected the crystal of water from Edgar back in Transference, And so right now, it's still in her possession. And there's no telling where she is right now. Jason stole the crystal of air out of the temple, while Clark and Lana were unconscious after their fight in Sacred. But the crystal of air gets stolen from Lana's apartment. Jason immediately suspects Clark, Lionel, or Lex, but it turns out that Lana faked the robbery so so that she could send Jason off on a wild goose chase while she keeps the stone for herself. Imagine Lex's surprise. He assumed the crystal of air was just gone. When he finds out that Jason put the screws to Lionel after it had been stolen, Lex is shocked. So this subplot was carried forward just a little bit in Lucy as an episode. So that's that stuff. Really though, this is an episode for Lois. She's not gotten very much character development this season. And the reason for that's because she originally wasn't supposed to stick around for very long. So why bother? But once it became obvious that Goff and Miller needed all the stories that they could get get their hands on this season, suddenly Lois is a top choice to fill in an episode. So bringing Lucy uh, to Smallville develops a history for Lois and her family. And it also sets up that Lois has problems with Lucy, Lucy has problems with Lois and all of that fun stuff. 
What's neat, though, is how Clark is supportive of Lucy all through this episode, even when Lucy steals Lex's car. It fits Clark's character two different ways, actually. First, Superman always sees the best in everybody. And Lucy can't be all that bad if she has Lois for a sister and Sam Lane for a father. The other thing, though, is that Clark's support of siblings comes from his abject lack of siblings. Clark would have loved to have had the love and support of a brother or sister as he goes through all this weird shit in his life. Pretty much any time he meets siblings, he gloms onto them because he's fascinated by the bond that siblings have with each other that isn't available anywhere else in life. And people, I've got two brothers. I know whereof I speak on this. What's most interesting of all, though, is how comfortable Lois is with telling Clark all this personal shit. They're hardly friends at all. Their relationship mostly revolves around picking on each other. So for Lois to level with Clark the way she did and tell him so much about her and her family's history, that ought to tell you something. The deeper themes and implications takes us right into Lex's participation. Now, Lex was the mark in this scam, so he had to get involved. But Neil Sadu and Daniel Solzberg, the writers of Lucy, they had their thinking caps on because normally, this is the sort of thing that Lex would never allow himself to get dragged into. Never. We saw him decline Clark, or rather decline to help Clark, when he faced this exact same situation with Pete back in the third season episode, Velocity. Now, true, Pete wasn't dealing with a loan shark. But still, Pete's life was in danger every bit as much as Lucy's supposedly is. The difference in this case is that Lex had ulterior motives for helping Lucy. He's trying to acquire a hotel in Switzerland, but the Lone Shark's front company, uh, front company keeps crowding the action and keeping Lex, uh, Lex out. So if Lex helps bring the Lone Shark down, the way is going to be wide open for him to buy that Swiss hotel. Still, Clark and Lex have an interesting conversation in the barn later on. Lex outright says he'd choose the Kents over Lionel as far as family goes. Now, that much is obvious. Lex has always tried to get approval from Jonathan and Martha, and Clark surely noticed that. And we all remember Jitters and Insurgents, where Lex watched the Kent family with envy and jealousy dripping off the screen. But this is the first time that he's ever voiced that. And it's obvious that it means a lot to Clark to hear it. But there's more. He says that Clark is closer to him than an actual blood brother would be. I've said over and over again through these retrospectives that if you view Clark and Lex's friendship strictly as friends, it doesn't really work. I mean, what the hell could some up-and-coming billionaire big shot like Lex ever want to do with some nobody farm kid several years his junior? But if you view Lex and Clark's friendship as brothers, it takes on a new dimension. They keep calling their relationship a friendship, but it isn't, and it never was. Lex and Clark view each other as brothers because that's a relationship they both 
desperately need in their lives, and they can't get it anyplace else. I just think Lois and Lucy could have been closer. Hopefully one day they will be. But that's up to them. So quit blaming yourself for what happened. Lex. Do you ever miss not having a sibling? I used to. Until I met you, Clark. You're closer to me than any blood brother. Another fun little bit of business here is Chloe once again needling Clark about his secret. Hey. Hey. Have you recovered from Hurricane Lucy yet? Uh, I just hope she changes her ways before she gets herself hurt. You know, it never fails. Keeping secrets always leads to trouble. I don't know which is more difficult, being the one keeping the secret or the one who's being duped. Have you uh, talked to Lois? She's been holed up in her room all day. She took it off pretty hard. Uh, well, ever since I can remember, the one thing Lois has always wanted is to protect her little sister. I guess no matter how bad you want to, you just can't save everyone. But it doesn't stop you from trying, does it, Clark? You gotta hand it to Chloe. She's definitely giving Clark every opportunity to come clean with her. Anyway. Usually cool action sequences don't go into my deeper themes and implications discussions, but the truck rescue sequence deserves to be mentioned here. First off, Clark's super jump from the bridge onto the trailer of that semi-truck is just fucking cool. But beyond that, Think about the last time Clark did a super jump as part of a big action showcase. It was back in Insurgents from season two, and Clark royally fucked it up. He underestimated his speed and the distance between the two buildings, and so he shorted it. He ended up crashing through a window a few fo floors below where he wanted to be. Now, he saved the day, don't get me wrong, it's just it was below where he wanted to be. He landed where he wanted to be. And so he had to save the day differently from probably how he originally wanted to. That doesn't happen here. Clark's timing, speed, and distance are all note for note perfect. We know, for a fact, that he couldn't have done this back in season two. So what this tells us is that he's still growing in his understanding of and control over his superpowers. He's got a lot to learn, but he's gotten a hell of a lot better over the run of this show. Don't believe me? Well, bust this. Clark makes his way to the cab and punches through the driver's side window and then continues the punch into the loan shark's face. This is the first time we've seen Clark punch a regular human in the face. Before this, Clark's mostly given him the old super shove and then they go flying across the room. Hell, Clark's rarely willing to get too rough even on meteor freaks. He usually shoves them too or else he uses his surroundings to his advantage. It's rare for him to use those John Wayne fisticuffs very much. The most physical that Clark's ever gotten is a toss-up between Jeremiah back in Season 3's Talisman when Clark beat him senseless with a fucking tree, and that sand dude from Pariah who killed Alicia from this dreaded season. But even there, one of them had superpowers from an enchanted knife, and Clark was out of his mind with anger over Alicia's death. This time, though, Clark's going up against a regular human. Clark has absolute control over his strength, though. He, all of his powers, in fact. He never misjudges his speed, 
his strength, or anything else. He does everything perfectly, and he does it right the first time. This is one of the few ref uh, rescues and scuffles that Clark's been in up to now where even Superman himself probably wouldn't have done a much better job. Now, sure, flying might have made a difference, but that's trivial. Bottom line, Clark got the job done about as efficiently as Superman would have. That's the point. So, moving on to other things, there's just a quick shot of one of Lex's black SUVs screeching to a stop right next to the semi-truck after uh, Clark's brought it to a stop. It squeals to a stop in a patch of grass. Now, this isn't a case where you have to look closer. I mean, just fucking look. And you can see that the grass is already torn to hell, and there's a huge trail of mud going backwards in the road. This all comes from the rehearsals and setup for the scene. It's a TV show, people. They have to do this shit quick, so little things like that sometimes go by the wayside. I just, I just wanted to mention it, that's all. The next thing is maybe a goof on my part, but exactly what the fuck is Lucy saying at the end of the episode where she steals Lex's Mercedes, screeches up to Lois and Lex, mouths or says something to him, and then peels off? I don't know. It's just, it's buried way deep in the, in the sound mix, and I, I can't, I can't uh, decipher it. Anyway, now, apart from that stuff, what I'll probably always remember about this episode is the trouble I had downloading it. Because I was truly in that era now. I didn't have cable TV, partly because I never really wanted it in the first place, and partly because even if I'd wanted it, I wouldn't have been able to afford it anyway. There's a story there, but now's probably not the time to get into it. So, anyway. What it meant for Lucy as an episode, though, was that I wasn't able to download the show until March the 3rd, 2005, which is to say, the morning after the episode aired. I worked from home at the time, so it was no problem to just download whatever I wanted to and then watch all of my stuff later that night. Except I didn't. Not in this case. And the reason for that was, there was really nothing that was happening at work. There was no work to be done. I forget the exact circumstances, but there was just nothing to do. I played solitaire for a while, I, then I checked my, my personal email, and then I surfed the internet for a while, and did some other stuff, but nothing was going on that day. It was just, it's just fucking dead. Then I remembered Lucy. Since there was nothing to do for work, why not watch the show on the clock, right? So that's what I did. And just to tell you how dead it was, I watched the entire episode from start to finish without interruption. No calls from customers, no calls from the boss, no calls from coworkers, nothing. The only other time I'd ever watched stuff on the job was Christmas Eve of 2004, which was obviously a few months before Lucy aired, but basically it was pretty similar circumstances. There was nothing to do. So I watched parts of the extended version of Return of the King, which had just come out on DVD at the time. But I only watched about, I don't know, 15 or 20 minutes of it before I turned it off and invented work to do, because it, it just 
didn't feel right or honest to slack off like that on the job. What made Lucy different, though, was that I told the boss about the Return of the, Return of the King thing later on, and he said that he didn't really care about that, you know, if I watched TV or whatever, as long as all the work was finished by the end of my shift. And all my work was finished when I watched Lucy, so if the boss says it's okay, who am I to argue with him, right? But since we're on the subject, I didn't make much of a habit of slacking off like that because even now, it, it just feels fucking dishonest, you know? So that was, I think that might have been the last time I did it, possibly. I don't, it's hard to remember, but I think that was it. Anyway. So, here we are. We've got the majority of the dreaded season four knocked out. And honestly, it's all going to get wrapped up in the next episode in this this dreaded season four retrospective that I'm working through right now. For next time, the episodes that I'm going to be talking about are Onyx, Spirit, Blank, Ageless, Forever, and Commencement. But that's next time. For right now, who needs a fucking drink? Grundy, born on a Monday. The following recording was taken from an NSA wiretap of a back to the men's taping. No names have been changed. Everyone is guilty. Do I need to mine or am I good where I'm at? Well, now you do. <laughs> if I have to mine, you have to do it. You might want to only if you do have it set to automatically because you don't want it to automatically because the thing never works right. Because what will happen is it'll be used to you at a particular time and then if you go out of that it scrambles to uh, a d and it doesn't ad fast enough. So it's better to just set it up. Oh, okay. It, do it really doesn't work well. So I checked right. uh, I checked my, uh, mm -hmm. my pro okay. It definitely built build me for the hotel for all three of us. Join Back to the Bins every week for goodness. Solomon Grundy hate voiceovers. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about 
the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes. And you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonzacore of Milan, Italy.